Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to another amazing episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day, and this week I had the opportunity to connect with Mark Sayers from Melbourne, Australia. Mark is the senior leader of Red Church, providing visionary leadership and teaching. He is well-known globally for speaking into the intersection of faith and culture and has authored a number of books, including his latest published by Moody Press, entitled Reappearing Church. Now, in this week's episode, Mark and I discuss the cultural upheaval we are currently facing, the hope of renewal that awaits, and how local churches like yours can enter into the hunger for meaning that so many are currently experiencing. Mark shares why his pessimism for the church has shifted to great optimism over the past five years or so, and how the church provides a place of belonging in the midst of the growing cultural anxiety in our world. This is such an important discussion for every local church and ministry, so please won't you join me in my conversation with Mark Sayers. Mark, it is a real pleasure to have you with us on the Church Leaders Podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, Mark, I love uh, your teaching, your writing, really your heart, because you have this tremendous sense of hope for the mission of the church in an age where, where honestly, we hear a lot of gloomy statistics, um, a lot of, of not the brightest stories, and secularism is on the rise. We're living in post-Christendom. The culture has definitely shifted. Uh, Mark, to set the stage for our conversation today, can you tell us a bit about the secular myth that most Westerners uh, are kind of clinging to and why we're kind of addicted to this idea of, of progress? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, one of, the, one of the senses of fear that we have um, as the church is that the story which we've really given our lives to is that Jesus died on the cross, that uh, he rose from the dead, that God is moving history to his ends. Uh, we feel that that story is being forgotten um, and we can become, I guess, discouraged and lose hope. But I think when we stop and pause and we actually look that that story is, in, is you know, competing with other stories and we often just presume that we, in a sense, um, believe the story that's, that is the story of secularism. Even as Christians, we can believe some elements of it. And what's really interesting is when you sort of stop and pause and take a step back and begin to look at really the story of secularism, it's a story which says that as the world moves away from faith and belief in God, that the world will inevitably become a better place. Um, the fact that we use terms like progressive or progression or even conservative, all of that is around an idea that history is moving towards an end where the more that we learn, the more educated we become, the more that we perfect humans and culture, utopia will arrive. And what's really interesting is I think we've moved into a new phase of secularism. I reckon there was a period from probably the beginning of the 90s until maybe even 10 years ago, five years ago, where that story looked like, hey, the world's getting better, everything's looking, you know, nicer, and that story of utopia arriving looked like it had strength. But particularly, I think, in the last five years, we're seeing that it's not arriving as people promised it would. Um, we still see inequality in the world. We see people jumping back into old political ideologies from 30, 40, 100 years ago that frighten us. 
Um, we're seeing environmental challenges. We're seeing culture becoming more conflicted. Um, and so what's what's happening is the secular story itself is actually beginning to have its moment of doubt. And I think there's a real opportunity there for the church. There's an opportunity for us to get back to the story that we believe in, and also for people who are doubting the culture-wide story to actually encounter God and encounter Christ for the first time. Yeah, that's that's, that's powerful. Um, talk to me a little bit, Mark, about, because you've done lots of, lots of stuff, you've written tremendously on on this subject, you've really analyzed a lot of, of what our culture has been really moving through. Um, but, but you've written about the idea of, of progress and how progress in itself has almost become a religion of sorts for some and, and how it, it kind of uh, moves God out of the picture and makes progress itself kind of central. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how that impacts the role of the church today? Yeah. Well, if you look at some other cultures um, and you get out of the West, um, you begin to see that a lot of other cultures see history as just continuing to repeat in cycles. Um, but what's interesting about the West is we have this deeply ingrained yeah, belief in progress. And what's so interesting is that, in a sense, that's a post-Christian belief. And what I mean by that is we can talk about post-Christianity sometimes as this idea that everyone's just gone beyond Christianity. It's forgotten. We almost look at post-Christianity as pre-Christianity. But post-Christianity really is this idea of the West to move beyond Christianity, but to keep its fruit. So Christianity spoke of these ideas such as God moving history towards his own end, moving it towards the kingdom of God coming in fullness where peace will break out, where there'll be you know, no tears shed. Uh, the concept even of equality has these deep biblical roots that you don't see in some other Western, uh, sorry, non-Western cultures. Um, so in many ways, I've said before that, you know, I think that what post-Christianity is and its belief in progress is a desire for the kingdom without the king. So Christians saw history moving towards uh, the end, you know, God's purposes, and God would move it towards God's purposes. And post-Christianity still wanted to move towards some sort of utopia, but it doesn't want God moving. It doesn't believe in God. So it sees there's just this inevitable move towards and progression towards a better world. And all that is really animating that is just this deep faith in progress. So that that's, I think, at the core of that belief. Yeah, now, we're in a, in a point now where, as you've said, that secularism is, in a way, showing some of its cracks, right? So yeah. how, how does the idea of revivalism and renewal within the church kind of fit into what we're seeing presently? Well, the thing I began to realize is, and I think what began to reframe my understanding of what is happening at the moment, and to be completely honest, you know, six, ten years ago, uh, five years ago, I actually felt quite pessimistic about the future of the church. My my assessment was, secularism's here, it's very powerful, we need to just hold on for a period, it's going to be this really tough winter, if you like, for the church, and we just got to hold on for spring, and that could take several generations. But then more as I began to study how God works through history, um, and particularly studied the history of renewals and revivals, I began to see this trend. Number one, um, when people were basically writing the epitaph for the church, and people were saying the church is done, it can't face this particular cultural moment, um, 
it was exactly at those moments that the church sprang back into life. <laughs> Number two, when the cultural story, the wider cultural story was falling down, when it was under tremendous cultural pressure and conflict, um, at those moments, people began to look for what some people have called the gap between idols. It's like people moving from one idol to another, and they're in between the two, that in those spaces, they begin to you know, re-examine faith. Um, and thirdly, really interestingly, whenever moments of globalization, and we often think about globalization as something that's happening now, but it happened in the 19th century, it happened in the 17th century, um, it even happened in the first century. Um, where people and cultures move around, technology connects us. At those moments, also, the gospel tends to go out through the world. So we really have all three happening at the moment. We have, we have that sense of globalization and technology uh, connecting and disrupting the world. We have tremendous cultural change. The stories that we've believed in now, I mean, there's just this profound um, uh, pulling down of any authority figures, celebrities, institutions across the world that we would put our hope in, like everyone seemingly having their dark sides exposed from sports to politics to economics to everything. Me too. And um, and then that sense too of, of this profound moment when people think the church is done there's these shoots where what that means often is we think the church is done, but often what it means is cultural Christianity is done. Mm. And in, in, in periods of success, it'll mean that there are people who will turn up and join faith and practice faith who are wholehearted and have hearts after God. But there'll be a lot of other people who are just going with the dominant thing of the day, you know? Right, right. And th- there's a lot of people at the moment where people are like, I think panicking and going, wow, all these people are leaving or even some of the stories we've heard of, people of faith seemingly, you know, and well-renowned, you know, believers seemingly deconstructing and giving up their faith. That right. that happens in these moments. Um, but what it does is it actually, in a sense, it's a purifying thing. And I actually say to people, it's not about the number of people. It's actually, it's not, it's not the, qu- the quantity, it's actually the quality. And renewals and revivals always spring from remnants. And so I'm less concerned now about amassing vast amounts of cultural Christians. I'm I'm more my 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 focus now is how do we find those remnants of wholehearted believers? Because they're out of remnant spring revivals. Yeah, that that's that's fascinating because as we are looking, we do see a lot of this kind of de- deconstruction happening all around us. And and uh, you mentioned um you just touched on on the word anxiety and in, in that there, there tends to to seem that there's this kind of anxious. We're living in this anxious uh, moment, although it's you know mm. lots of moments strung together in the church itself. Everything's kind of uh, tearing down in some ways. We see you know um, reports from whether it's denominations or ministry organizations. There are kind of record numbers of of disengagement in mm. in this kind of sense of anxiety within the church. Um, as we're looking at this idea of kind of renewal coming through this, what do you think that the church is going to look like over the next, you know, five or ten years? You know, you've kind of reflected mm. back that five years ago or so, you you had kind of a pessimistic outlook um, that has shifted as you've been digging more and more into um, renewal and revival. Where do you think we're headed as, as the church? Mm. Yeah. I think what we're going to see is, I think we're going to see um, a lot of 
cultural Christianity burn off from the Western church. And I think that that's already happening at, at different rates in different places. Um, I know here in Australia that, you know, that that's happened already a lot. Um, when, when I think particularly of like millennials coming to my church, if you, pretty much now, I think if you're a millennial coming to my church and you're a Christian in 21st century Melbourne, Australia, um, you're not a cultural Christian because the cultural Christians now have left. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. There's still some out there, but right. the pressure, the uncomfortability to be a Christian. I mean, one of the real interesting things I'm noticing with millennials coming to church is many of them have no Christian friends left. All their friends have left their faith. Um, but what's really interesting in that, I'm seeing this change, e- honestly, even in the last 12 months, um, where there's just this increasing devotion. Um, there's this pressing in, there's hunger in our services. There is desire to pray. There's desire to meet together and pour over scripture. There's less of a desire to be entertained. Um, and, and, and as I'm sort of, cause I'm so used to just for years now pr- providing in a sense, you know, more I thought about it, like in some sense, church for so many people has been providing for almost a consumer product for, for, for cultural Christians. Mm-hmm. And, now that we're in this stage, it may be smaller. Maybe there'd be less money around, but it's actually easier <laughs> in one sense because because I don't have to impress people. I don't have to win them over and continually, you know, go after fickle people. You know, like who who is turning up now? They're actually in, and so I see a church in the future where maybe it'll be a bit smaller. Maybe there'll be some. We'll have to really ask God to provide for certain things and actually get on our knees. So. I actually see it as as a church which is more disciplined, more hungry, more of a remnant, um, more pure in the sense. Like I'm not saying it's going to be perfect, but in a sense, there's a greater purity when people are in it for the right motives. Um, and I see that we're entering a phase where there's there's this this. I mean, Michael Green in his book um, on the Book of Acts and the early church said, you know, the church, particularly in places like Antioch, became this this hot centre. And people were drawn to it because of the the liveness of faith in those places. Mm. And and I see the church becoming like that again. Instead of being this cold, uh, Richard Lovelace talked about cold orthodoxy. So you can have a church which believes all the right stuff, but no one's living it. Um, I think that's going to pass, and we're going to return to almost that hot, warm orthodoxy where people believe the right things but are living it in the right way. Yeah, Mark, as, as you were, were talking there, I was thinking back to um – something that you wrote in in your newest book, uh, Reappearing Church, and you talked about the the fact that society is drowning in freedoms, but really thirsting for meaning. Is, is yeah. that, can, can you kind of um, elaborate a little bit on that in regard to yeah. uh, the role of the, you know, what people are, are looking for and how the church kind of can really step into that and uh, share the hope yeah. of Christ? Well, we, 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 I think humans, um, to be healthy and happy, um, need a balance of meaning and freedom. So, for example, um, there are people currently fighting for um, freedoms around the world in different places. So people, say, in North Korea have very little freedom, and there's people behind the scenes fighting for their government to change and to have freedom. Um, now, what's really interesting is when you're actually when your when your freedom is limited and you're fighting for freedom, interesting thing that happens is you actually get meaning. So when people are fighting for a cause, they have a sense of meaning. Um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about during the bombing of London in World War II during the Blitz that 
when it stopped, people in weirdly, he said, missed it because there was this sense of meaning and community that all these people had this common experience where they had to pull together and help their neighbor and, you know, hide out in bombing raids um, in their neighbor's backyard. And it actually limited their freedom, but brought them this sense of meaning. Now, what's really interesting about so much of life in the West and in the developed world, also in places like South Korea and Japan, which are highly developed, is that increasingly what we're seeing is people have more freedom and more choice than ever before in history. Mm. Um, But there's actually this ceiling that when you get beyond a certain level of freedom, you move from the benefits of freedom into the anxiety of choice. choice, They call it the choice paradox. Where and, and a really simple example is this. If you if you lived in a country where there was one type of washing powder to wash your clothes, after a while you're going to get bored of that, it, particularly if it's not a good product. Now, if you then have five different options, that's probably a good space. You go to the supermarket and which washing powder am I going to have? Now, then if you go to another supermarket where there's 500 choices for <laughs> washing powder and, and you, don't, you don't know which one to get, physiologically, you start to feel anxious because your brain and your, your emotional system can't process all this choice. So we now have so much choice. We can download any show on Netflix. We can order anything to come to our front door from Amazon. Um, we can be anything we want to be. We can get married, not married, m- move around the world, take a cheap holiday vacation here. We are overwhelmed with freedom, but we're actually, we have a deficit of meaning. And so when you've got too much freedom, you actually begin to lose meaning. And I think this is behind so much of, people talk about the return of politics and people treating politics like a religion. So much of that is actually them trying to find something that only religion can give, which is meaning in politics. So the church now finds itself at a a time where people are again looking for meaning. And they're overwhelmed and they're anxious. We now have culture-wide anxiety. There was just a report that came out by Jean Twenge um, who said that, I think it's in the last two years, the mental health crisis amongst U.S. college students is just, it, it, it was already bad. It's just going to new and crazy levels. And so much of that, I think, is a cultural phenomenon. Less that, So there's, there can be individual mental health challenges, but mm-hmm. there can be cultural mental health challenges. And so, so much of the anxiety in our culture is actually because we don't know what to live for. We've got too much choice. We, we are constantly exhausting ourselves. So into that space, people are again looking for meaning. And I've been surprised at my church, other churches I know in the West, in places like Britain, talking to friends in New Zealand, we used to say, no one's going to walk through the doors of your church anymore looking for a place to worship. I used to say that in conferences. I'm finding they are now. We've got people turning up with no no background in faith. I know of cathedrals in Melbourne, which are literally having people walking and saying, I don't know anything about Christianity, but I want to know about it now because I have no meaning in my life. So it's a really interesting opportunity to see that whilst we can't provide all the freedoms of the world, there's now a deficit of meaning, and we have the ultimate story, which brings meaning. Yeah, let, let's talk, Mark, a little bit. Let's press in on that a bit. In, in From the perspective of a local church pastor, what can we do, uh, what, what should we be focusing in uh, upon in order to, um, you know, kind of step into that, that anxiety that we're, we're sensing in our culture? And in helping, you know, connect people, what what are some practical things? Well, I think that, I think there's, there's a really. I mean, Jesus spoke about 
the seed going to good soil? Mm -hmm. So one question I've been asking is, where is the good soil in my community? And, you know, beginning to see really interesting conversations where people are questioning these things. So having an ear for that. There's a whole group of people who are just, you know, not interested at this point in time, um, who are just still distracted by the endless entertainment of our culture. But there's other people who you sit down, you have a conversation, it could be as you're dropping your kid off at school and they say, what is going on? Like, I found it so interesting as someone who's written about culture for the church, I find myself increasingly in conversations with people from outside the church who are so open to someone explaining what on earth is going on in the culture. So who are the people asking questions? Secondly, we live in a world too of um, migration and globalization, and we have people coming to us now who are hungry from other parts of the world. Now, in the past, this, I still believe in missions. We still need to go. But we've also got people who used to have to go the other side of the world coming to us. In our community here, we have uh, heaps of people, Persian people from Iran. Uh, there have been more Christians from Iran or Persian people in the last 10 years become Christians as in the last 10 centuries. Mm. Um, we do Alpha at our church. We're just doing Alpha at the moment. There's heaps of Persian people hungry. You know, so who, who are the groups that God's actually doing something about in your community? Um, and, and just keeping an eye open for them. And, and and asking God to bring you into contact with them and, and you know what can you do with them and they in our community a lot of them are on um, they've escaped because of various reasons for persecution How, you know they have spiritual and physical needs um, and then the third one I would say is it's really interesting in that report on um, millennial college students in the US facing new mental health challenges one of the comments that Jean Twenge said was that an emerging thing amongst emerging generations is low flourishing for the first time in history, we have, I think it's trending towards possibly a majority of people not being married. Increasingly, we have in many Western cities, the majority households in, in the inner cities as a single person. Uh, we have people who joke about these things like adulting, they, they call it, you know, like where they're not being, they've not even learned how to actually have conversations, how to make friends, how to fill out a, a, a you know, forms and, and sense of, you know, so there's basic life skills. Mm -hmm. So at our church, we're actually thinking about how do you have almost a course where we'll come and equip you to have conversations, to connect with other people, to actually build community, to actually organize your time. Like it, it sounds, a lot of maybe people who are older would hear this and go, that sounds, uh, didn't you learn how to do that? But there's this tremendous hunger where actually people have not been equipped by a radically individual culture with basic human life skills. And I think there's a huge opportunity for the church to step into that space and show people how to live and a story and biblical wisdom that actually equips us to move from low flourishing to flourishing lives and the abundant life Jesus promised us. Yeah, that's that, that's fantastic. All those, all those opportunities that kind of are being presented to the church. And I think it's important for us um, just to to have a very prayerful perspective on it all because we can get caught up in those, you know, stats and in the, the stories and in the fact that it looks like culture is moving so far away from God. And yet, um, as you shared, and even you've seen in your own community, there there's this growing kind of recognition that there's, there's something deeper to life. And mm. we haven't been able to fill it with all these these other things around us, and so there's this mm. sense of hunger for it now, right? And yeah, um, absolutely. Is this um, is this something that, as you've been studying, kind of uh, the movement of um, revival and renewal within the church historically, 
Um, is it is it often in these these vacuums of meaning where we see renewal coming together? Absolutely. Um, uh, Barbara Tishman wrote a book on the 14th century, and um, at, at, in the beginning of it, she says this point where, and there was there was a sense of in, even in the, the Middle Ages, there was this renewal, and um, she, she talks about the fact that there was a gap between what the culture promised and what it delivered. Mm. And I think that that gap is getting bigger. Yeah. And particularly for emerging generations where even the idea that in the past, it was just expected that you could have your own home, you'd get married, you'd have a family, you'd have a job. Um, So many, so many millennials I speak to that they're worried about that stuff. They're worried about that. They're worried about the, the political future of the world, the conflict future of the world, you know, um, they're they're worried about environmental challenges. All these things are on their horizon, and and so the story that culture has been telling them: Hey, don't worry, it's all going to be fine. We're just going to keep the, the people who are in charge look less trustworthy <laughs> across the political spectrum. So that means that then people are going to say, Where else am I going to look? When the early church started, it started at a particular time when the world was connected. The Roman world had connected the world through. The Roman army bringing peace, um, which was often oppressive, but it brought peace. The Roman road, the Roman mail system. That's why Paul and all the apostles could travel around and the right. gospel could spread. But at the same time, the story that the Roman Empire told about itself, that you just had to follow Caesar and everything would be okay. The background story to the gospels, the background story to the book of Acts is, is culturally that story was falling apart. And uh, it was beset by civil war. Um, it looked less and less like Caesar could provide the peace of Rome. That's why people started looking to the peace of Jesus. And and you can even see how the Gospels are written. Like Caesar Augustus, you know, called himself like the Prince of Peace. So you know, so Jesus called you know people talking about Christ in the were saying, hang on, this cultural story isn't working. Look over here. Here's a different story that is. So we have to be attuned to that gap between what's promised and what's being delivered. And and I'm so hopeful because. So often that is that is the moment that God will step in when when people are not finding the culture story of meaning they'll again look to the older story which is not just a story it's the true story empowered by the Holy Spirit testified by Scripture the gospel announces the story and and it, it's happened before and it will happen again yeah yeah I, lo- I love that Mark let me ask you this um, when we uh, there's there are times I think and in in some cultures even today where the whole idea of Christendom is kind of lumped into the powers that be, right? So um, they look at the the church, capital C church, historically as this piece within the you know the cogs of the wheels that are turning society, and so they're questioning the church as a whole, and kind of lots of times lumping it in with um, politics and you know all of these other pieces, and they say, well. Um, things aren't pulling through like we thought they would, um, and sometimes the church is lumped in that. So how how can we yeah. navigate that when there are some people who aren't just looking at um, kind of the secular world as failing them, but they kind of consider this whole idea of church, you know, religion as a whole as part of that? Yeah, that's that's so true, and 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 it's a really interesting one because there's an element of truth and an element of mistruth in it. Mm. Um, and there's always these two stories going on in the expansion of God's mission in the world. And, and number one is that the gospel and the church goes out 
we know that we're not perfect, but there's these elements where you'll find always that remnants that people who sing into what God wants, whose hearts are after his. That, that story is always there. But also, when you read Scripture, um, and you even see it in the book of Acts, straight away there's compromise. Um, so much of Paul's pastoral writings are actually to Christians who are walking off the path. They're speaking of wolves, false teachers, people stealing money. Um, that's from the get-go. If you read Acts, you'll see a very honest assessment of what the church will look like going forward. And, you know, often I think a lot of Christians haven't really wrestled with that, and they're expecting every church, every Christian to be this pristine person. And a lot what happens is, I think what's happening in the world at the moment is the world is continually subject to God's love and His judgment. And His love will come to those who are humble, who are not seeking after self, who are, who are meek and gentle in spirit, and that love will come to them as a healing balm. To people who are prideful, to people who are seeking self, seeking power, um, that love will come as a form of judgment. And so I think what's happening in the world now is, is uh, Charles Malik, who was a Lebanese Christian, said that the crisis in the world at the moment is being caused by Christ. And what he meant by that was the political crises that we're having, the economic crises where corruption is exposed and, and institutions which have gone corrupt are seemingly pulled down or shown for what they are. That's happening in the world, but it also will happen to those elements of the church who have chosen, or Christians who have chosen the world over the kingdom. Mm. And I think we miss that. And and if you blend, take Christianity. I mean, Jesus said, you know, you'll come to me and you'll say, "We did this stuff," and you'll go, "I don't know you." Mm. Like, I don't think we've really wrestled with that. And and there's two elements to that. So number one, there there is forms of Christianity and certain people and and certain ministries and organizations who sadly have chosen the power of the world over the powerlessness of the gospel. Mm. Now, we have to understand that. And there's so that's why there's always this counter story. Um, you know, when when the conquistadors went to South America and were, you know, taking over parts of South America and, and sometimes, you know, doing that supposedly in the name of Christ there was also other people part of that party saying, now, hang on, the indigenous people of this country are humans. You've got to stop doing this. There's always the counter story. And the second element of that is, so we've got to see what's the counter story, what's the, the judgment of Christ coming against Christians who have, who have compromised. But then also I've got to ask that question about myself. I can easily point a finger outwards, but I continually every day have to face the choice as a, as a local pastor of am I going to do this in my own power or am I, am I going to pursue my own platform? Or am I going to actually let, as the psalm says, that, you know, let Jesus' arm and his strength do it for me and actually let him be my fortress and my strongholds? Um, so we've got to ask that question continually of ourselves because better people than us have compromised. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's that's very good. Thank you for that. Uh, brother, as as you're talking, you have the ear of um, pastors and ministry leaders, your your colleagues from around the world right now. What words would you like to share with them? Maybe something we didn't touch upon, or maybe to to dig a little more deeply into something we did. What what uh, words of encouragement would you like to share with with pastors and ministry leaders listening in today? Yeah, my my, my interest in renew and revival actually really is undergirded by. A work of renewal and revival that God did in my life. A couple months ago, at my friend's church, and I just had a couple hours. They've got a building, and I was on the roof, and I just was 
looking at all around in, in Midtown at just the cavernous, huge spaces between buildings and skyscrapers. And, and it dawned on me that 10 years ago, I was in New York preaching uh, in 2009, 2010, and I was not in a great way. I, I had my own mental health challenges. My church, I think, was in a very fragile space, but I was in a fragile space. Um, and in, the, in that 10-year period, as I sat there like two months ago, God showed me what he'd done in my personal life over the last 10 years through pressing into him in the hidden places. And God's brought this incredible work of healing in my life. And so what, what's, what my heart and, and, and passion and, and hope for renewal corporately is birthed out of an internal personal renewal. My friend and mentor Terry Walling says, uh, personal renewal leads to corporate change. So I think if anyone who's listening here going, well, I've got a heart for renewal, I've got a heart for revival, I want to see my church change, my neighborhood, my city, my country, the world, that first begins inside of us. Mm. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his book on revival that um, revival people who God used at the beginning of revival are people who came to the end of themselves. In 2010, I came to the end of myself and fell on my knees and said, God, just use me, change me. I've got, I've got nothing left, God. I'm willing to just toil away in obscurity for you. And God then began this work of renewal in me. So I just really encourage anyone listening that, it begins first inside of us. It begins first in us. If we want the culture to intimately fall in love with God again, we need to intimately fall in love with God again. If we want to see the Word of God held up in our culture, which has turned its back on it, the Word of God has got to come real in our lives again. If we want to see prayer movements across our cities and in our churches, we have to have a personal prayer movement begin, which probably is just going to be this person listening by themselves in the early hours of the morning. Um, if we want to see health come to families, if we want to see a mental health crisis, uh, you know, arrested and changed, you know, we need to step into those spaces of healing ourselves. Um, and people might be listening going, how on earth do I do that? Turning to God, doing the right things. There, there, there is, there is a, a, a renewal that needs to begin in us. So that's the overwhelming thing I'd say. This begins with us. This be, and, and, not, and I'm not saying that as now, like go and do this great human striving towards those things. I'm saying turn to God, fall on your knees, say, God, I can't do this. Please do this for me. I'm willing to be an empty vessel to be used by you. I love that, brother. So good. So good. Mark, now obviously if people want to um, dig more into this uh this um, idea of renewal, especially pastors and ministry leaders, you know, I really encourage them to to pick up your latest book, Reappearing Church, The Hope for Renewal yeah. and the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture. And, and you really, um, a very practical, practical book. You have um, with each chapter or even, even ways to dig in and questions. To, so you can even go through this with your, your ministry team if you want, your staff or your church. But um, what, what are some other ways that they can learn more, can maybe connect with you or your, your ministry? Yeah. Um, well, marksayers.co is just my, my sort of personal website. Um, there's also some, some links there to um, a podcast um, I did with my friend John Mark Kramer called This Cultural Moment, and mm-hmm. um, that that's a great place to, I guess, look at what's happening in culture. But also, as, as we went on in the seasons, this real desire for renewal began to emerge, and um, particularly there's a series there called The Portland Sessions, which is also some of the teaching of me teaching on renewal and revival that people might find helpful. Um, and also, I just, I mean, it's not really pointing people towards my stuff as much, but I just encourage people to read 
like church history, read the stories of Great Awakenings and revivals. Mm. Um, it's so inspiring to see when God did this again. It could be John Wesley or Jonathan Edwards or, um, you know, the East Africa revival. So many great stories of God doing incredible things will actually fill your fire for God could do this again. Excellent, brother. I love that end. And uh, we will include links in the show notes um, to some of those resources that, that you mentioned. But yes, being students of church history and and uh, seeing how movements of God have, have happened across the years and being encouraged and inspired by those, um, I, I, uh, I agree that that's a, a powerful way for us to be looking and listening and opening ourselves up to what the Spirit wants to do in and through us. So, Mark, uh, again, thank you so much for making the time uh, to, to be with us from Australia. And I always like talking to people from Australia because you're in the future, and so it gives me great <laughs> hope that— uh, Tomorrow morning is going to be a great morning for me because it's already tomorrow morning for you. So thank you for uh, pioneering uh, life here on Earth. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.